Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious God, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and mold them and shape them according to your purposes. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Do we share God's vision for the church? Do we share God's vision for the church, which the hymn writer calls His Holy Bride? That's the question for this morning. Now to answer it, I'm going to turn to the section in Acts that I've been assigned in our series, Outward Bound. So if you'd be kind enough to turn to Acts 11, beginning at the 19th verse, I'm hoping it's up on the screen. If you've got your pew Bible or your PDA or whatever uh, means by which you access the Bible, it would be great if you'd have it open to our passage. And as you turn to it, let me just say a word of introduction about the importance of the church in the context of God's whole plan for salvation for human beings and the world. It is absolutely crucial as Christians for us to understand that when we talk about the community of the church, we're talking about the community of the saved, and we need to pause and ask what that actually means. And part of what we need to come to grips with as Christians is salvation is a massively loaded word with massive theological significance. Real biblical salvation is awesome. It stretches back in time and takes our past guilt and deals with it to justify us. It reaches down in the present time in our weakness and takes us by the Holy Spirit and sanctifies us. And it extends forward into our future prospects and will ultimately glorify us. So when we talk about the community of the church, we are talking about those who have been saved, are being saved, and will be saved. That is the church, the community of the saved. And God is doing nothing less than achieving his purposes in history by taking the church as his perfect instrument of his purposes fulfilled in the world. And in the book of Ephesians, it actually dares to say, if you want to know what I'm doing in the world, world, and if you want to know what I'm doing in the world, angelic world, he takes the church, he holds up the church to the angelic world and says, this is it. Do you see? This is what I'm doing in history. This is my body. This is the community of the saved. It's an awesome reality to be part of the church. We are the bride of Christ. I can do no better on this point than the 1549 prayer book service of ordination. You might not have looked at it in a day or so because it's kind of old. But it's my favorite service in all of Anglican history. And we're at the point of the ordination service where the priest is being examined by the bishop And he's about to be asked to bow down on his knees where he's going to have hands laid upon him by the bishop and the other bishops, if they're there, who are part of the service. And he's being examined. And the whole idea is you're about to kneel down before your bishop and these other bishops. But you need to understand that this examination is not simply about this kneeling, but it's also about a future kneeling. You're going to have to kneel before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of your ministry for what you've done with the church. 
And so the examination reads this way. This is shocking language, beautiful language. Listen to the high doctrine of the church that Cranmer has in 1549. To the priest, the bishop says, Have therefore always printed in your remembrance how great a treasure is committed to your charge. For they are the sheep of Christ, which he bought with his death, for whom he shed his blood. The church and the congregation whom you must serve is his spouse and his body. Boom. And then it goes on to say, if anyone in your congregation is any less than a a, a full disciple in the best possible way because of your neglect or your malfeasance, you're accountable. So pay attention Because this is the body of Christ. This is the blood of Christ shed. And this is the bride of Christ for whom it is shed, whom you're serving. Those of you who are married, you don't need to go any farther than having a spouse. Does it really make any sense to say what so many people say about the contemporary church? You do know that we're in a time where ripping the church is what's in, right? It makes me think of the 1970s poster in Britain. Jesus, yes. Church, no. And there isn't anybody here who can't relate to that. So it's great fun to tear down the church for her inadequacies, for her weaknesses, for her troubles. We could go on all morning, greatly distressed, as she's always been in history. But when you talk about the church, you're ripping the bride of Christ if you want to tear her down. And if you want to get me really riled up, just try saying something critical about my wife, especially if it's unfair or untrue. It's just not true. You can't care about somebody and say, I don't really care about your spouse. I love Chris, but Catherine, who cares? Can you imagine doing that to the rector? Right? And like most clergy I know, Chris married up. Right? So it it should actually probably be the other way around. Right? You know what I'm talking about. All right? So the the point is this. The point is that the church is the bride of Christ. The church is a precious commodity. And we're talking about a vision for the church. Now keep that question in mind and that high doctrine of the church in mind. Now now let's look at the church in Antioch in your text. And let's consider where we are in our Outward Bound series. And what I want to do is I want to make three observations about this wonderful story. And as you turn to it, as we begin, let me just say at the outset, it's a terribly significant story for all sorts of reasons. But it's here, we're told, that the, the followers of Jesus, who are called disciples, which is a word in scripture that means student or learner. And can I just point out to you that they learn by following people. You and I learn by reading books and following subjects. So their idea of learning is apprenticeship, right? You go to the carpenter shop and you spend seven years with a carpenter. Then you learn how to be a carpenter. So for them, disciple is a learner, an apprentice. You're apprentice to Jesus. It is here in Antioch that for the first time in history, they're called Christians which is terribly, terribly significant. Now look at your text and let's think. And I want to say three things about this community as we begin. I want to say something about a gospel that they gossip. I want to say something about a grace that they manifest. And I want to say something about a generosity that they demonstrate. So a gospel they gossip, a grace that they manifest, a generosity that they demonstrate. Now look at your text and let's think. And I have to say something about geography because we're in the book of Acts and we're in our series, so I've got to keep 
the flow going, right? So remember Acts 1.8. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And this is super important this morning because the gospel for the first time went beyond Judaism to Cornelius, who was a God-fearer, right? And, and you know that a God-fearer is someone who is not a Jew culturally but wants to be a Jew theologically. They respect the monotheistic tradition. So when they come into Judaism out of respect and for theological reasons, they're still on the edge of Judaism. But today, for the first time, which is why it's so important, Antioch, the gospel goes to the Gentiles, pure Gentiles. These are real pagans, brothers and sisters, with a capital P. For the first time, this is the beginning of the uttermost parts of the earth. It starts here. Without this church, the gospel doesn't get to us. Without this witness, the church's witness in history doesn't extend. Antioch is a massive, massive city. It is hugely populated, at least half a million people at the time, 300 miles north of Jerusalem. One historian thinks that they had 750,000, maybe even 800,000 people. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that after Rome and Alexandria, it was definitely the third most significant city in all of the Roman Empire. That's big praise, right? So in American terms, right, New York is the biggest, right? And uh, second biggest is Los Angeles, right? Third biggest is Chicago with, with actually, if you're paying attention, Dallas right on its heels. But never mind that. But the, but the, but the point is, it's like Chicago, in the ancient world, it's like Chicago for us. It's a, this is big. And it's a place where there's tons of commerce and tons of immorality. And that's what it's known for. One of the Bible commentators calls it the Las Vegas on the river, <laughs> which is a great title for the place. Okay, so here comes the gospel. Look at your text and let's see. First of all, they gossip the gospel. There's a gospel to be talked about. Look at your text. There were some of them who were ordained and they had really nice collars and they went to really good schools and they had really fancy titles and they had all the right stuff on the resume and they were the ones who spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. No, 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 no. Let's be clear. Let's be very clear. These are ordinary pew occupiers, as you and I would call them. These are lay people who are gossiping the gospel. They are simply sharing, look at your text, it says preaching the Lord Jesus. The way to translate it is the good news of Jesus Christ the Lord is the way that the Greek reads. And I want to point out a whole bunch of things about that. First of all, it's news, okay? We can spend the whole morning on this. For crying out loud, my hope and prayer is if you will learn anything about Christianity from my preaching, it's that it's not advice, It's news, right? It's about the Christian faith and life, yes, but it's about Jesus Christ dying for sinners. And what do people do with news in their life? Everybody does this, right? They talk about it. You don't have to take a Clemson fan and say, please be enthusiastic about the Tigers. You just don't have to do that. Have you been around any? I mean, they're talking about Dabo Sweeney. They're talking about the high school recruit they might get next year. We had a family in my parish that I served in Sumter. The whole of their house was orange. I promise. I've told you this before. I'm going to tell you this again. Even their toilet seat cover was orange. It's really true. 
Now, what do you think that they want to talk about? And they don't, they didn't, you didn't go to their house and they say, well, you know, you really, you might be interested to know that. No, 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 no. That's not how you'd share news if it's news to you. They're just right in your face. Dabo Sweeney's new quarterback. What do you think about him, huh? Really good. Tall, fast, best in his high school, yada, yada, yada. That's the way people talk about news. You want to know about news in my life? We have a lab. He's black. His name is Nakam. Uh, we are a uh, family of pets. Our dog got cancer. Yuck. Uh, they found this sack in his stomach. He had to be operated on. I did not like it. I did not like the implications of it. They took the cells away. They looked at the assay, and he's cancer-free. You have no idea how excited I am. My dog is cancer-free. That's the way I talk. I don't say, would you like to know something about my life? Let me tell you something about my dog. No, that's not the way you talk about news. You talk about it like this. Hey, my dog is cancer-free. Praise the Lord. That's the way you talk about news. Because it's just natural. If you like the tigers, you like the tigers. If you're excited about your dog who doesn't have cancer anymore, you're excited about your dog. That's the way people talk about things that they're excited about. And what are they talking about that they're excited about? The Lord Jesus Christ. That word Lord is all through this passage. He is the Lord of history. He is the sovereign Lord. He's the one who's in control. Later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 17, we'll read these fantastic words about the early disciples. They are, and I quote, turning the whole world upside down. And they're talking about another king, Jesus. Not Caesar, but Jesus. Yuck. What a statement. They're turning the whole, all they're doing is gossiping about this Lord Jesus Christ. But they're saying something about his lordship, his authority, his saving work. Have you ever considered how important it is for you as an individual person to simply share what God is doing in your life? Learn to ask questions of other people that really matter and learn to share naturally about your faith like you share about other things that you care about that are news in your life. That's what they did. That's all that they did. And the Holy Spirit blessed them. It wasn't the ordained. It was the lay people. It was the pew people. It was the ordinary people. And a great number, look at verse 21, a great number of them believed and turned to the Lord. No wonder they were first called Christians here because they heard about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that word Christian is a word that means little Christ follower. It was probably used as a term of criticism, but it was ultimately accepted as a compliment by the Christians. Here's David McCaslin talking about Antioch and this idea of Christians. He says this, he says, Hans Geiger, Rudolf Diesel, Samuel Morse, and Louis Braille all share something in common. You with me? Geiger, Diesel, Morse, and Braille. They all invented or discovered something that bears their name. They appear in the Encyclopedia Britannica's list of greatest inventions of all of humankind. By the way, there's only 325 on the list. And they not only invented it, but it shares their name. And he says this, he say, says, We who follow Christ bear his name. In Luke's records of the early church, the first disciples are called Christians in Antioch. Later, 1 Peter 4, Peter urged the earlier believers not to be ashamed of suffering, quote, as a Christian. The term once directed at Jesus' followers in scorn was embraced by them as a badge of honor, a mark of allegiance to them. 
E.M. Blaylock, the chair of classics at the University of Auckland in New Zealand, said it had a certain appropriateness for it implied loyalty and acceptance of a person. And that person, the Messiah, the true modern word follows the same tradition. The Christian is one who accepts with all its implications the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's perfectly stated. If you have somebody who's a person in your life that you're excited about and you share news about, that's exactly the way you share about a person. I'll be happy to tell you all sorts of things about my three kids after the service. I'm very excited about all three of them. You don't have to rev me up. It's very natural. I can keep you here all day talking about all the terrific things that I think that they're up to and that they have in their future and so on and so forth. That's the way people talk about people. And what they're doing is they're gossiping about a person that's transformed their lives. That's what real, natural, what is called friendship evangelism actually is. It's as natural as talking about the weather. It's as natural as talking about sports. It's as natural as talking about dogs that have been cured from cancer. Y'all with me. They're gossiping the gospel, number one. Number two... They're manifesting the grace of God. I love this passage for so many reasons, but above all, I think the most beautiful section is verse 23. Did you notice what happened? They gossiped and these people became Christians and they heard about it in Jerusalem. And of course, when the diocesan office hears something, you know, they get nervous because it's not, it's got to be done decently and in order. And we, now we got the gospel out here to these Gentiles and ooh, so we've got to send Barnabas to make sure everything's okay in Anglican fashion, and all done dutifully and in order. And so Barnabas goes down and it says, he, look at what it says in verse 23. He experienced the grace of God. No, he saw the grace of God. This is a fantastic idea. Not heard it, not experienced it. He saw it. He looked at a community of the saved. He looked at the bride of Christ in Antioch, and he saw the embodiment of grace. Now, grace is an undeserved gift from an unobligated giver. I want to make sure to say that again. It's an undeserved gift from an unobligated giver. I have an advantage as an Anglican talking about grace because I can say to you every week, you actually have an illustration with your body when you come to communion of what grace actually means. When you come to communion, you just take out your hands and you stretch them out. And we don't give you the bread and the wine because of your South Carolina uh, genetics, your resume, the amount of income you get, your grades in high school, what a great guy or gal you are. I could go on all morning. The only thing Archbishop William Temple said that he contributed to his salvation is the sin from which he needed to be delivered. You don't bring anything. It's all gift, it's all grace, it's all free. That's grace. Now, that's what grace means as a concept. But what's being said here is shockingly powerful. It's being said that Barnabas, who's a very discerning guy, by the way, I mean, he goes and gets Saul at the end of the passage. This is a serious Christian, right? Son of encouragement. Uh, What a great privilege it'll be to meet Barnabas in heaven someday. A wonderful guy, but he sees the grace of God. He sees a community that's not about all rules and regulations and, and false disciplines, but he sees the embodiment of people who've been forgiven of their sins and are living like it, who have been saved, who are being saved, and who together will be saved forever in glory. And he sees it. You can taste it. Here's Larkin in his commentary on this passage. The grace that Barnabas sees is not so much the change in lifestyle, although that's there, 
or the manifest spiritual gifts, though these are undoubtedly present. Rather, it is the great numbers of newly and soundly converted Gentiles. In Acts, grace is the power that flows from God or the exalted Christ and accompanies the activity of the apostles, giving success to their mission. Do we with Barnabas rejoice at the spectacle of God's free favor, unlimited by racial or religious frontiers, embraced and enjoyed by all without distinction, says F.F. Bruce. That is a fantastic statement. Now, 50 years ago plus, A.W. Tozer said this about the book of Acts, and I want you to think about it because it's very powerful and, it's, and it hits right along with what I'm talking about now. He says this, he says, if, if the Holy Spirit left 95% of what the contemporary church was doing, it would keep happening and no one would notice. And if the Holy Spirit left 95% of what the early church was doing, it would stop in its tracks. Boom. Here's another way to think about the grace of God being seen. And it's a very important one. Think about what it would like. You know Jesus. You know his character. Jesus is grace embodied, grace empowered, grace lived out, grace incarnate, if you will. Can you imagine what it would be like just to be with Jesus for a week and walk where he walked and listen to what he said and saw the miracles that he did? And there's the woman who's been caught in adultery and they're all getting ready to stone her. And he, he says, which of you didn't have any sin, you can cast the first stone. And then he's there with her by herself. Go and sin no more. Can you imagine being part of that scene? Can you imagine with a woman at the well who goes to Samaria and evangelizes the entire village and says, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did, who was married to five husbands and the guy she's living with now is not her husband. Wouldn't make most Episcopal vestries. But, but Jesus gave the gospel to her. The disciples are arguing on the road about who's going to be the greatest. And he turns around and says, you guys are dunderheads. No, that's not what he says. That's what I would have said. That's not what he says. He's, he says, I am among you as one who serves. You guys have the whole way of thinking about the kingdom backwards. It's all grace. It's all gift. It's grace manifest. To see grace in action is to see lives like that, is to see miracles like that, is to see conversations like that, is to listen to parables told like that. You all with me? And he sees the grace of God. A real Christian church is a church that embodies God's grace corporately and individually. By the way, as we go flying by this, let me give a little plug here for small groups. There is simply no way, brothers and sisters, that you can live out a way of embodying God's grace unless you have people in your life who know you well enough to tell you good things about yourself, but also to tell you things about yourself that might need to be improved without having you lose their mind or lose your mind, right? That's what you you need. You need to be in a loving community where people get to know you well enough to tell you the truth about yourself, but also to embody God's love to you in community. And, and, You can't just do that. This is not a Sunday morning only operation. You all with me? All right, so grace embodied. And finally, generosity exemplified. It's wonderful stuff, this. I don't want you to miss verses 27 to to 30 at the end of the chapter in this little throwaway line where Saul comes into the picture. That's pretty remarkable. You remember Saul. He's on the 
side of the post offices, right? Number one most wanted for Christians, right? Right, and 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 Barnabas is the one who goes and gets this guy, uh, who who was a very very dangerous enemy of the church. He goes to get him, and he brings him to this community, and and they they have this strange prophet come and say, basically there is a huge need that's about to develop in Jerusalem, and you need to think about what this means. What do the disciples do? What does this early community of Christians do when they hear about the need? They basically say, okay, tell us what we need to do. Tell us how much we need to give, and we'll come up with the money. You ever been in a church like that? I'm going to brag on my former parish for just a little little bit, just to give you a sense of what this means. This is intentional generosity. Every once in a while at Christ St. Paul's on Young's Island, there would be a, a, a massive personal crisis that would come up. Somebody's Part of somebody's house would burn or something like that. And it, it, it always amazed me about that parish. They would give a single clarion call. Anybody who feels led, um, we're going to give a special gift to this family who just lost part of their house in the fire. Or for whatever. It, it was a personal, unexpected tragedy. We, our organist, uh, her husband died. That was an, that's another example. And they would always give these shockingly generous gifts to these people. And they didn't always know that much about them, but they were their brothers and sisters in Christ. Now think about what this means. These people are all the way in Jerusalem, but, but don't forget who they are. Who are they? Those are Jewish believers. These are Gentile Christians. Gentiles and Jews don't commingle both on the Jewish side, but also on the Gentile side. These are early Gentile Christians, and they're told about a massive need about a Jewish Christian community, and they're the receiving church, and they send a gift back to the sending church. That's awesome. That's not simply generosity. It's intentional generosity, and it's barrier-crossing generosity. Do you see that? There's a real sacrifice. There's a real trust on their behalf. <clears throat> it's not simply gossiping the gospel, and it's not simply embodying grace. It's giving generously. And I was interested as a student, and I wanted to make sure to mention this to you, to learn that Marx's entire central thrust of communism, of all things, comes from the book of Acts. Did you know that? The heart of communism as an ideology is this, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need. Now look at verse 29. Guess where Marx got that idea? From each according to his ability, in Marxism, comes from this verse. And guess where to each according to his need comes from? That comes from Acts earlier in Acts chapter 2. Marx got the whole idea of the central thrust of Marxism as an ideology from the book of Acts. He was a great student of the Bible. The problem is he ripped God out from underneath it. But even he could see that a government that was working the right way as he saw it would work this way. And this is the way that they give, from each according to their ability, to each according to their need. There is a need, there's a massive need noted, and it says they determined, and that's so important because Acts is really good on the theology of giving. Giving in the New Testament is always fundamentally an act of the will. You don't give based on feelings much of the time. Do you know the story of the the mother who's trying to teach her daughter about giving, and she says, uh, I'm going to give you a dollar and a quarter, and when the plate comes by, um, you you get to you decide what you want to put in, and um, what you want to keep. So, the plate comes by, and she puts in the the, uh, the quarter, and her mother asks her after the service why she did it, and she said, 
the minister said, God loves a cheerful giver, and I figured I'd be more cheerful if I gave a quarter. <laughs> and there isn't a person here who can't relate that, right? That's giving based on feeling, right? I, I felt like I would feel more cheerful, so that's what I gave, right? The, qu- the question is, what does God want? And what do we decide? And that's how they, that's how they lived it out. All right, so I give you a, an early church that is powerfully, powerfully a model for us. And what I want you to do this morning, brothers, is this. I want you to develop what I want to call a holy dissatisfaction with the way things are. What if you use this as a measuring bar of what the church should be? A church that gossips the gospel, a church that embodies the grace of God, and a church that gives generously, no matter what the situation, no matter who has the need, if it's something that comes to them and they become aware of it and they can do something about it. That's a fantastic standard. Now, let me go from preaching to meddling for a few minutes and I'm done. First of all, let me say something about evangelism. Back to my first point. I want to really hammer home how important it is for you to realize that you are a witness for Christ. You are, in fact, the New Testament actually says this, you are probably the only letter from Christ that some people will ever read. You do know that, right? You've got office workers at your business and their only experience of Christianity is probably you. And the question is not, are you a witness? You are a witness. The question is, what kind of witness are you? Leighton Ford, who's worked with Billy Graham for many years, a really wonderful evangelist, um, tells a great story about Billy Graham when he was doing an open-air crusade in Halifax, Nova Scotia on this point. It was Friday, and Billy was going to speak on Saturday night at the end of the week, and Billy Graham decided to come to his own crusade incognito. So he had this um, dark hat and glasses, and he sat in the back row, and nobody knew he was there. So directly in front of him sat an elderly gentleman who listened to Leighton Ford, who was the guy who was on the platform that night. He gave this compelling, you know, won't you accept Christ? And so Billy decided he'd have a little fun in the back row. So he tapped the guy on the shoulder and said, would you like to accept Christ? I'll be glad to walk down with you if you want to. And the old man looked him up and down, thought it over for a moment, and then said, nah, I'm going to wait for the big gun to come tomorrow night. Leighton Ford says, Billy and I have had many good chuckles over that incident. Unfortunately, it underlines how, in the minds of so many people, evangelism is the task of the big guns, not the little shots. Don't buy that lie. It's simply gossiping the gospel as naturally as talking about your favorite sports team or your favorite pet or something great in your children's lives. You all with me? Now, let me say something about generosity second before I wind this up. I, I debated how many ways to get at generosity because it's such a it's such a difficult subject and it's particularly difficult for americans we're not very generous as a people most american christians give between 1.5 percent and 2.5 percent of their income to the church and the stats show and you need to know this in case you don't that as the country has gotten more affluent in the last 30 to 40 years, the amount that the average Christian gives to the church has gone down. So the amount of assets that they have has gone up and the amount they're giving has gone down. So pay attention because this is not, if you put us in the context of the global church, like with Benjamin Kwashi of Nigeria or something and had him sitting, this is, this is a weak area for us. So we, we definitely need challenge in this area. 
But what I want to do is just say a word about a, a story that I read in the mid-90s because it touched my heart. And what I want to simply say is this. Generosity changes your life. And when it says Christians, it means little Christ. And you, whatever you want to say about Jesus, remember, he was radically generous. In fact, Paul says, he told us, it is better to give and to receive. And one of the most deep ways that you can embody the character of Christ and the grace of Christ is to be a generous giver. So I'm sitting there in Somerville in 1995, and at the time, um, the New York Times came through the mail, and there on the front page of the paper was a woman whose name was Osceola McCarty from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And I took a special interest because, first of all, a woman like that doesn't ever appear on the front page of the New York Times unless something unusual happened. And second of all, my family on my father's father's side has an association with Hattiesburg, Mississippi. So I looked at the article and I started reading. She was 87 years old. She was a bundler of dirty clothes, which she washed all her life and made neat and clean and folded. And she mended. She was a clothes worker, a clothes washer in Mississippi. She never went to college. She never married. She never had children. She never even learned to drive. What in the world was she doing on the front page of the New York Times? Well, thank you for asking. (laughs) I will tell you, she was 87 years old. She was a Christian. She went to a local Baptist church. So much was she a Christian that the article points out lovely detail of this. Her Bible's chapters of 1 Corinthians had to be held together with scotch tape because she read it so often. She knew enough about stewardship to know that she was going from this world to the next pretty soon at age 87. And she had saved $150,000, which she decided she didn't need. So she wrote the University of Southern Mississippi and said, here, this is all I have. I'm giving it to you for scholarships for young people in this community to get an education. And the people at the University of Southern Mississippi said, who in the world is this? And what is she doing? And they went to the records and looked for all the McCarty graduates And was she a parent of a new student? Nobody could figure out who she was. And she didn't have any association with the school. She didn't get an education herself. And she just did this radically generous act. And it changed everything. And I was interested. I did research this week, and I I, I never followed up on her, I'm sorry to say. She died in 1999. And as a result of this act, she became one of the most famous women in the world. She met President Clinton. She went to the UN. She went flying for the first time. She said, I liked it. (laughs) I mean, I just loved reading about her. And and her body actually lay in the rotunda of the University of Southern Mississippi when she died. Incredible. She, people greeted her at airports. But, but the point is this. She saw a need. She had resources at her disposal. And she thought strategically and intentionally as a Christian. She said, what can I do to make this community better? I never got an education. There are people in this community who can't afford an education. I'm going to give my money to this university so they can get what I never had. That's all she did. A clothes washer, a clothes mender, a clothes folder at 87 in Mississippi. She changed the world. Generosity is not small, brothers and sisters. It's not small. So I give you my original question back again at the end. What does it mean to share God's vision for the church? It means to care about her as if she really is his holy bride, to pray that she could thrive 
to pray that we as, as Holy Cross could be a community that embodied the grace of God. Would it not be wonderful if somebody would say about this church, I see the grace of God there. I would move heaven and earth to join a church like that. Heaven and earth. And that's the church we're called to be. And apart from the Holy Spirit, at least for me, we're not going to get there. Are you all with me? So this is a call for us to go on our knees and for ask for God's power to help us so that his bride in this place can be the way he wants it to be. In Jesus' name, let us pray. Lord, thank you for Antioch. Thank you for the people that shared. Thank you for the people that heard. Thank you that it's literally true that we stand on their shoulders this morning. And without them, we would not be here. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us to follow your spirit and simply share the good news of what you're doing in our lives more fully and more naturally than we're doing at the present, Lord. That you would enable us to tell the truth about the good news of the Lord. And Lord, we pray that you would touch us in our hearts and enable us to be generous as you were generous. Take us individually, take us in our small groups, take us corporately, Lord, and empower us to be a place where the grace of God can really, really be seen in the low country of South Carolina. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.